Okay, we got rid of the uh, bump, bumper video and uh, my dreaming of interpretive dancing in that time. But um, listen, that, that passage, this word, it's a really good word. Some of us it's foreign to because we don't live in the sacrificial system time period. We don't really understand the ideas that are taking place in this completely, but, but I, I hope we see the picture. And the picture is the satisfaction of the wrath of God because the perfect sacrifice is on the cross. And that temple, that holy of holies, is open to all because of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And so what does that all mean? What does that mean for me today? What does that mean for us? This first Sunday of Advent, we're celebrating the coming of Christ. My daughter, this morning, she, she woke up. I was up a little bit early, and I was working on my sermon, and I'm sitting on the couch, which is in front of the Christmas tree, and, and my daughter, Adeline, does not even acknowledge me. She goes straight to the Christmas tree, and she sees the presents under it, and she smiles. Her eyes light up, and she says, Daddy, can I just open them today? And I'm thinking to myself, man, I was just like that as a kid, and probably I probably would have opened them today if, you know, Mommy and Daddy weren't there. Um, snuck a little peek and figured out what was there under the tree for me. Um, and, uh, and then I actually told her, yeah, why don't we do that? And she's like, really? I can open them today? And I said, yeah, why don't you go ask your mommy? Then Carrie comes out of the room and she says, go, let's open them today. And she's like, you guys are, this is too good to be true. And it is too good to be true, actually. We told her, no, we're going to wait until Christmas Day because we want that waiting to build up to something special when that gifts are opened. But Christmas is not about the gifts under the tree. Christmas is about the gift of Jesus Christ that says that the greatest gift is the salvation that has been bought from the babe in the manger to the king on the cross. That's what Christmas is all about. And the gifts under the tree are just the icing under, on the cake. I mean, the, the things that we enjoy, the everyday common grace of God, the air that we breathe. The, I, I met some people that are from Illinois today, and they came here, and it's, it's going to be 80 degrees here today. That's a good gift for us, friends, here in Orlando. There's these common things that we experience that God has given us. But may they all be a picture of something far greater. Life is full of these pictures, isn't it? You see a picture of, a, of a, 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 an older couple that have been married for a long time. That picture communicates far more than the image in front of you. It communicates a story. It communicates what has their life been through. I, w- I wonder what they've gone through. Their ups and their downs, their heartbreaks, their joys. All of these things in life communicate something far more beyond what you can see. And that's not just marriage, that's in friendships. You know, friendships are a gift of God. And in those friendships, we should see God right in the middle of them. Because the Bible in Proverbs says that you have a friend who is closer than a brother, pointing us to Jesus Christ. And then there's a really cool picture that I was able to see not too long ago. My friends Carl and Amy were adopting a child from Ethiopia. 
And it was just this concept in their mind at this point in their life. They, they knew they wanted to do it. They felt this urgence from God that this is going to happen. And they took steps of faith and obedience to see this thing come to reality. But when reality hit was when that picture came through of their daughter. And she sent it out to a group of friends and she said, This is our daughter. Isn't that amazing? Halfway across the world, I mean all across the world, you have a white family here in the United States speaking English to another family all across the globe in Africa. And you have the love of God that's shown perfectly through it. You know, Carrie and I, we we prayed for that. We encouraged them in this. There were some hard and difficult days that they had where they wondered, is it really going to happen? But they persisted and they persevered. And then finally, when little Yordanos, we call her Yori, she's in our children's ministry right now, when she came home, Man, our church was so filled with love. And not just our church, but their friends, their family. And and you know what I saw in that picture? That wasn't just the picture of Carl and Amy adopting this little girl. I saw a God who does something far greater. Listen, I saw myself in the picture. And I saw God in the picture. I see the depths of which God would go to bring me home. That's what the passage in Hebrews chapter 7 says, that Jesus will go to the uttermost, has gone to the uttermost to save those whom are his. A picture of something that is far greater. A picture that transcends race or geographical territories or language. picture that says God is holy and we can trust him. And we can trust him. That, that's the picture that we get with the sacrificial system in the tabernacle. We're, 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 we're unfamiliar with it all. In fact, the author here says at the end of chapter, uh, verse 5, he says, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. And the reason why he says of these things we cannot now speak in detail is because he really didn't have to speak in detail of those things because the first century Jewish Christians would have been very familiar with the tabernacle, the priesthood, and the sacrificial system. They would have been told those stories. They would have been told the law. They would have been told how they are to be regulated in worship before a holy and righteous God because of their sin. They would have been told those things. They would have known those things. But we are yet unfamiliar with those things because we live here over 2,000 years removed from that. And so I want to go into detail where the author doesn't, and that's with some of the picture that this gets into. So here's the first picture. I think, Ryan, we have that first picture. This is the, uh, a, a picture, a zoomed out view, of what would have been the tabernacle in the courtyard. So the tabernacle is this tent 
that is right there. You see the veil, uh, and there's a little glimpse of what's inside of it. And there's the courtyard. This courtyard was about 150 feet. Actually, it was specifically 150 feet long by 75 feet wide. There were specifications that Moses told that, uh, that God told Moses to build the Israelites to those specifications, not only for the courtyard but also for the tent. The first thing you see that the person on the outside of that uh, outside of that gate uh, as he, as you go in there is there's this bronze altar, and that's the altar where they sacri- where, where the, the sacrificed animals become burnt offerings. And so, for the regular Joe Schmo of Israel in that time period, the non-priests, that, that's as far as you could go, was the bronze altar. And so, you couldn't go beyond there. You see, the next part, is there's this basin there, another bronze basin with, with pure water. Uh, that's where the priest would go through this ceremonial cleansing in order to go into the first section of the tabernacle, that that bronze basin was where there the purification would take place, so that they could be in the presence of God. Next picture uh, is zoomed in. Here's the tabernacle. Okay, there's uh, you, you see this veil, this first veil, the, the, the ornate, intrinsic detail that went into that curtain, that veil was absolutely astonishing. In fact, the whole wealth of Israel is in that temple, is in that tabernacle. It was all inside of it, gold. You see what's happening here. Outside of it, you had the bronze, uh, you had the bronze altar and you had the bronze wash basin. Inside, you have gold. All of it communicates that the closer you get to God, the more precious and priceless are what is inside of that. And so, inside of this first part, this is called the holy place. It's the first section of the tent of meeting. This is where they meet with God. The first section in there is this light. It's ironic that we have a light here today. And that light symbolizes that God is light. And also, that we see in the fulfillment of Christ that Jesus is the light of the world. You see the bread of the table. That bread represents our sustenance, our need to sustain. Jesus is the bread of life. And then there's an altar of incense that is in the holy place. Actually, here you see the author mentions it in the most holy place. But what the author is really describing is that the, that the air of the incense moves into that holy place. Symbolizing the full and complete presence of God. And then you move into that holy place and there is the ark of the covenant. That is the that 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 is where all the people who wanted to take over Israel wanted that ark of the covenant because that was the most valuable treasure. It was completely pure gold. The veil that you would have had to go in to get through there had seraphim on it. You see those creatures there. Those seraphim represent the holiness and the unapproachableness of God. If you remember Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. It's these these creatures that are encircling the throne with the power of an F-16 fighter jet. I mean, it was amazing, the majesty and the mystery of God. 
And inside of that Ark of the Covenant was reminders of the steadfast love and faithfulness of God to the people of Israel. The tablets, which on them were the Ten Commandments. God gave his law. He communicated with us what it means to be right with him. The the staff of Aaron, that God leads us in the wilderness. The manna in the urn, which states that Jesus Christ will one day be the bread from heaven that is our daily bread that will never, ever, ever fade away. And everything about this tabernacle, everything about this tent, said something not about us, but about God. And it says that God is holy. God is holy. God is holy. But it says something to us. And what does it say to us? Don't go near. Keep out. Really? Is that what it really says? I mean, why would God have them build this tabernacle and this tent of meeting where he would meet with them and say, you cannot come in? Because we couldn't have come in. If we would have come in, we would die in the presence of God because our defilement, because we are unclean. And so you had the priests who were able to go from the first section And that's all they could do. They could go from the altar to the first section where the light was and the bread of the table was. But they couldn't go into that most holy place or they would die. And only one person can go once a year into that place. And man, they couldn't just they just couldn't walk in that. It was an elaborate ordeal the night before, the day before, the cleansings, the washings, the clothings, all the things that represented what this priest had to do to be in the presence of God says that God is holy and I am sinful. And there's something I need to see God's holiness in my sinfulness reconciled. That's the message of the Bible. The Old Testament. The Old Testament shows us the holiness of God. And the sacrificial system shows us the sinfulness of humanity. And the need for reconciliation so that we can truly be in the presence of God. And the author of Hebrews says in chapter 8 that this is a shadow of reality. This is is not the real thing. It's just a copy It's just a picture of what the actual presence of God looks like. The the people of the church in Hebrews, we don't know much about them. We know that they were Jewish Christians who had come to know about Christ and they hadn't seen him. We, We know that they lived a vibrant, probably Jewish faith. And so there was a lot of emphasis on the law, a lot of emphasis on ritual, a lot of emphasis on all of these things. But yet, there is a danger that after accepting Christ, they would take their hope from the blood of Christ and they would put that hope back into a bull or a goat or a calf or a lamb. But they would trade the eternal blood of Jesus for the temporal blood of an animal. 
Now, we come to the realities of our lives here today and we say, well, that's foolish. I mean, that's, why would someone do that? But, but really, that's what we do on a day-to-day basis. We exchange the hope that we have in the living God, Jesus Christ, for the temporal things on earth that we think might fill the voids of our hearts. You see how the Jews... In the Christian Jews in that time period could easily go into that because they want to move, they want to, they want to live with certainty. Their world was falling apart. There was persecution. There was troubles that were being had in accordance with them. They were being ostracized and isolated from, of their, fam- from their families because of Jesus Christ. Why not just go back to the way things were? Why not just go back? to the tabernacle, and to the sacrificial system. And the author of Hebrews says, because it's a copy. It's not the real thing. Don't do it. And so we have to see ourselves in this story. That we are part of this picture. Verse 6, Thus these preparations, having been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. So there is my first point in in the sermon. I actually said it, uh, uh, but I didn't tell it to you. It's that there's a place and the place represents the holiness of God. The the second thing that we're going to talk about is the practice. There was a performance that was had and that performance or that practice represents the sinfulness of humanity. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood. Not without taking blood. It's a death sentence. Don't go into that place without taking blood. You will die. And only one person could do it. And only once a year. The people of Israel had a lot of faith in this priest. That this priest would be pure when he went into the presence of God and he stood as the representative for the nation of Israel. On his garments he had the twelve tribes of Israel representing that he stood in the gap between God and man to represent man to God. And the first thing he had to do was bring blood. He had to bring a bowl. And on that bowl he would lay his hands on He would confess his sins. And then he would, according to the regulations that are found in the Old Testament, he would slaughter that animal. Because his sins would be overlooked for that sacrifice. Can can the blood of bulls or lambs or goats or any animal wash away our sins? Now, envision this with me. This, this would have been like a, a human rights crisis, right? I mean, an animal rights crisis here today. The, the, this, this tabernacle, go back to that picture with the courtyard if you don't mind, Ryan. Uh, that tabernacle would have had people coming from far and wide on the Day of Atonement to bring their animals to be sacrificed. Those animals would have smelled the smells. They would have seen the sights. The blood would have been like fountains running from that place. And the animals would have not been going on their own. They would have been drugged there. And the people who were bringing them there were bringing them there for the slaughter. 
And so you have an innocent animal who has no choice. No choice being sacrificed for sinful man. But how can an animal sacrifice satisfy the punishment for a person? How can that happen? It's not equal. That's why we don't have animals in jail for what people do in crimes today. We don't lock up the animal and bring the animal to jail for the person. No, the person is put in jail for themselves. When someone dies, uh, when someone is, is brought to the, the point of a death penalty, we don't sacrifice an animal for them. No, we sacrifice the person because the person did these things and the person is also a danger to the rest of society danger to the rest of the world. And so it shows us that that wasn't what was really required so that man's sin could be washed away. And that the presence of God actually was something that we have yet to been able to enter into. And that's where we read it, verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. The Holy Spirit indicates that you cannot go in there. Keep out as long as the first section is still standing. As long as that veil is still up, do not go into that most holy place. Don't go in there. Don't go in there. Now something powerful took place. When Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. Verse Matthew 27 verse 50 and 51. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. That day when the true sacrifice died was the indication by the Holy Spirit not to keep out of the Holy of Holies or the most holy place. Not keep out. That is not the message of the New Covenant anymore. The Old Testament says keep out. The New Testament says draw near by the blood of Christ. You have access to God. Draw near. And, 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 and can I really draw near? But I'm dirty, I'm defiled, I'm unclean, I'm impure. Can I really draw near? Not on the basis of your works. Not on the basis of your purification. But on the purification of an absolutely holy and righteous God who is perfectly pure for you. In His sacrifice is the sacrifice of sacrifices. Listen, he didn't just do it once a year. This is why we don't have a special ceremony for Jesus coming back once a year and doing it on the Day of Atonement and then disappearing for another year. He doesn't do it just once a year. It's not annual redemption. It's eternal redemption. They had to do it over and over and over again to remind themselves that this thing is not done yet. The priest could never stop 
The priest couldn't sit down, but Jesus, no, he sits down at the right hand of God. And the veil that's torn in two tells us that access to God has been made fully and finally through the blood of Christ. And so Jesus Christ is sitting down. He is resting because everything is happening in accordance with his will. And your life, you're in that picture. Me, I'm in that picture. And, and, and maybe you don't, you, you, you think that this is too good to be true. Like really for me, does he, do you know what I've done? Do you know what I've gone through? Do you know the sins that I bring to the table? Do you know how much I have committed crimes against God and I don't feel that God is approachable? Do you know the pain that I feel in my life on a day-to-day basis and the angst that it produces? I wonder, is God letting me close to Him? Because I have this pain, because I have this loneliness, because I have this isolation, can I really come close to God? And the message of the author of Hebrews is yes. Yes, you can. And you can because of Not what you have done, but what Christ has done. Verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipers. You hear that? Gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot. Say that with me. Cannot. Let's try it one more time. I caught you off guard. Cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Then what good are they? If they can't perfect the conscience of the worshiper, then what good are these gifts and sacrifices? They dealt only with externals. They dealt only with the outward self, not the inward being. And the problem was, is that sure, that priest could go in that that Holy of Holies, but the best that he could do was have an external cleansing to be before an intrinsically holy and morally pure God. The best that the sacrificial did was it stayed the hand of God so his wrath didn't fall immediately. But something would still have to be done. There would have to be a better sacrifice and a better priest to cleanse our guilty conscience. What do you do with a dirty conscience? We've all experienced it. You go to bed at night, it keeps you awake. You think about what you said and you shouldn't have said. You think about what you've done and you shouldn't have done. You think about all those woulda, coulda, shouldas. And you replay them over and over and over again and over your life. They don't get smaller. They just multiply. I don't care how good you are. You find yourself guilty because the law accuses us outside of Christ as being guilty because we are guilty. And so our conscience is still in need of cleansing because the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart, says Matt Chandler. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And that's the one thing that these sacrifices were limited to cleansing. They could not cleanse the heart. The center of our being. They couldn't cleanse us. So, sin, for example... Sin is not an action issue. Sin is not an obedience issue. Sin is a heart issue. Sin goes much deeper than the actions into the heart. If you don't believe me, just look at culture today. There's a lot of talk about guilt. And the talk about guilt is in line with sexual harassment, sexual violations. 
You have all of these things happen by what we see is men in powerful positions upon their subordinates, upon other women, even upon other men, where there's a violation of the body. And that violation of the body is not just a violation of the body because sexual sin, we know, is a far greater violation, a violation of the soul. And that, my friends, produces guilt. And then you have these people that we've looked up as philanthropists. Good people, good people. I mean, politicians that you think that you can trust and you like, can I really trust them anymore? TV news anchors, can I trust them? This week, on Tuesday, it was revealed that Matt Lauer was one of them. And many of us have watched him. The Macy's Day Parade in particular, maybe some other occasions. And, and it caught, I think, very many off guard. It caught me off guard. And by the way, I want to say this as a freebie. When, when things like this happen, don't celebrate it, pray. Can, can, can we just be that church? Don't celebrate this when things happen. I don't care what political party so-and-so represents. It, it, it represents depravity. And depravity should not be celebrated Depravity should be prayed for and wrought for and asking God to reconcile. And so anyway, this, this took place in, in, in on, on the Today Show. The co-hosts came up and the co-hosts immediately addressed the issue. And they didn't just address it in, in terms of here's the facts, here's what happened. They did address it somewhat in that way. But they addressed it from a very emotional issue. In fact, his co-anchor, Savannah Guthrie, said, I love Matt. This is a man I love. Like, I didn't just used to love him. I love him. But it produces this dilemma, which she describes. We're grappling with the dilemma that so many people have faced these weeks. How do you reconcile your love for someone with the recognition that they've behaved badly? And I don't have an answer to that, said Savannah Guthrie. That's the question. That's the question that has been the age-old question that has played humanity. How do you wrestle with your love for someone and the sin that they have committed against others and even against you? How does God reconcile his love for us and our sinfulness? Savannah Guthrie says, I don't have an answer to that. The Bible says, yes, yes, you have an answer to that. And the answer is found in Jesus Christ. The answer of how do you love and how, how do you love a sinner sees not just the sinner, but listen, listen, sees self in that place. If you cannot see your place, yourself in that place of the guilty, and you will never, ever, ever be able to say you're forgiven. And that inner angst that that produces will only create bitterness. And your guilty conscience will continue to condemn you. Because the finished work of Jesus Christ says forgiveness is free and forgiveness is final. And so the question becomes for Matt Lauer. How do I get back into the good graces of the world. How do I get back in the good graces of God? 
And you've seen this dog and pony show before. Like you see how how people have done this. You you go to an addiction treatment in a far off place and a very walled uh, location. And then you create after that, after that six months is up and you've gone through intense therapy, then you do the apology tour and you go the circuit and do your apology tour with heartfelt tears and sorrow. And then after that, you begin to write books about how you are so blind and how you need to be more aware of these problems that you've created in the world around you. And then you donate lots of money to specific charities that will help with those specific issues of what you've done. That's the worldly way of doing it. And listen, it's not all bad. I would actually recommend all of those things because I think that they can be helpful and I think that they can be necessary. But I think that it's just a shadow unless you miss our real need for redemption Unless you miss that those things cannot cure the guilty conscience. Because ultimately, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And what Jesus Christ answers with his sacrifice is the answer to that dilemma. How does God love guilty sinners? Kent Hughes says it this way using the imagery of the tabernacle and the tent in the most holy place. He says, Jesus did not just slip into the most holy place amidst a protective cloud of incense to breathlessly perform a ritual sprinkling and then exit until next year. Instead, he came having given his own precious blood once and for all. And there he sat down at the right hand of the Father, never more to leave. Jesus, like a priest, he didn't go with blood from an animal. Jesus went in that most holy place with his own blood. And not for him. He didn't have to offer a sacrifice for himself because he was undefiled. He was completely pure. He was completely innocent. So he didn't have to offer a sacrifice for himself. Then who then did he do it for? This is where you have to see yourself in the story, church. If you don't see yourself in the story, church, then you miss it. He did it for you. He did it for you. He did it so God would be glorified in your sinful heart by the reconciliation and the atonement of the cross so that all of your guilt would be put upon him and he would be punished in your place. That's what you deserve. That's what I deserve. That's what we deserve. And that's what Christ took for us on the Day of Atonement. And he did it once and for all. Completely finished. And the last one is the provision. The provision of Christ's blood. You know, as, as, as Abraham was, was about to sacrifice his son Isaac, Abraham is a man that counted the faith of God. He knew that he would bring Isaac back. And he's going to be obedient to God on that day. And as Abraham was about to sacrifice his one and only son, God said, Wait. I've got a better provision. I'm going to provide you my one and only son. And it's going to be his blood that's shed so that your son's blood will not be shed. 
And the promise of Jesus Christ is that the blood of one was shed for many. Once and for all. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, and then through greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. When John the Baptist saw Jesus Christ before he baptized Jesus, he says, There he is. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then verse 13, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. How much more, if the blood of animals can purify the externals, how much more will the blood, the eternal blood of Christ, purify us and cleanse us from the inside out? My question for you, friends, is do you have a guilty conscience? And here's what I would say to that. Let's go to the cross together. There's an application here, and the application is found in the last verse. Last verse says that he purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Do you know what dead works are? Trusting in the copy rather than trusting in the reality. Trusting in the shadow rather than trusting in the true and genuine substance. And so this whole ritual and sacrificial system was something that the Jews were tempted to put their trust in. Just like we can be Tempted to put our trust in what we do rather than what Christ has done to purify our dirty and guilty hearts. Dead works are us trying to earn what Christ has earned like the confession that we just prayed. Dead works are, we, are, are what we try to do that only Christ can do. And, and you might figuratively agree with that with me right now. But listen, like... I, go, I had to ask myself this question. Like, how do I do that? How do I do that? Have you, anybody ever wanted something? Maybe you, maybe you wanted a child. Maybe you've wanted uh, a, a job promotion. And maybe you've thought, why don't I get what I want? And, and if, you, if you've been through that and you've walked with Christ long enough, you've probably wrestled with this thing. Maybe I'm not studying my Bible enough. Maybe I'm not praying as much as I should be. Maybe I'm not doing this or doing that. Maybe the reason why I can't have a child is because I'm not being a good enough parent to the kids I already have. Or, or, or maybe I need to learn more lessons. Maybe these are things that I have to do in order to get in God's good graces. And you know what that is? That's putting your faith in dead works. And I'm not saying that any of those things are, are bad things. But I'm saying that those things, when they're there to earn God's favor... You forget that you've already earned His favor in Christ Jesus. And those things expose idolatry. And even those good things can be bad things when they become God things. And Jesus, though, He tells us that the finished work through the cross is final. And so dead works, this trying to get in the good graces of God, is something that we must repent of. 
Because we must know that that veil is torn and that the message of the cross is draw near right now. You have God. You don't have to go through a checklist today. When you take communion today, you don't have to go through a checklist. When you take communion, you take it because his body is broken and his blood is shed and it's been shed for you, period. It's finished. Put a dot on it. Take communion for crying out loud if you believe that. And receive it with glad and sincere and generous hearts and say to God, my life is yours. And I'll do whatever you want because I love you so much. Not because I'm trying to get something from you. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Sam Storm says the problem isn't that you feel guilty. The problem is that you are guilty. So here's what you need to do. Receive by faith the work of God in Christ that He has already done for you. That's it. Believe. Believe. What you believe, you will obey. What you obey, you will trust. What you trust, you will see set you free. By faith, believe it. And walk in the freedom of that. And watch how God changes your life. Watch how we are that holy people that God purifies from the inside out. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that your work is finished. Your work is final. That it is the blood of Christ that we rest in right now. We don't trust in our works, God. Even this morning, God, I was making bargains with you. I was saying, God, if I'm not doing this and I'm not doing this, then somehow I'm not going to do a good job here today. Or people aren't going to like me or all these things, Lord. i got to repent of those things. i got to repent of those things. Father, because your spirit comes and comes in power and shows us the risen king. Jesus Christ, he's the acceptable offering of God because the tomb is empty. He has given us freedom in life. And that, God, is what we want to partake in today. By faith, receiving the finished work of Jesus Christ. So that you, God, can do a work in us from the inside out. You have saved us. You sanctify us. And you are making us your own day by day. And we trust in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me? As we take communion, remembering that it is finished, that he has done it, that we receive that finished and that final work of Christ on the cross. Let's worship.